Welcome to conference coverage presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day. Featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the Pediatric Academic Society's annual meeting, which took place May 1st through the 4th, 2010, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm Sue Berg. This year's meeting attracted more than 7,500 participants from around the world. The conference focused on advances in pediatric medicine, including developments in basic and clinical sciences, translational and health services research, and clinical practice. The Pediatric Academic Societies are four pediatric organizations who co-sponsor this annual meeting. The societies are the American Pediatric Society, the Society for Pediatric Research, the Academic Pediatric Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Key highlights included the latest research into autism spectrum disorders and implications of obesity in pediatric patients. In addition, presentations focused on endocrine disruptions in youth, recession impacts on infants, children, and adolescents, comprehensive asthma management, the implications of lack of sleep in adolescents, and the use of probiotics for weight gain in extremely low birth weight infants. Results presented during the meeting from a study on sleep in adolescents suggested that shorter sleep duration, particularly in adolescent boys, was associated with a higher percentage of body fat, higher body mass index, and being overweight. For this study, researchers collected data on 723 adolescents. The data included sleep duration during the week and on weekends and sleep problems. Researchers also gathered information on foods and beverages consumed during the prior day and measured activity for seven days. The researchers found that overall shorter sleep duration was related to a higher BMI in adolescent boys. However, in adolescent girls, only shorter sleep duration on weekends was associated with a higher BMI. In addition, researchers found no relationship between shorter sleep duration and the weight-related factors studied in high school-age adolescents. However, shorter sleep duration in middle school-age adolescents was associated with a higher percentage of body fat, higher BMI, and being overweight. The researchers concluded that this data demonstrates the need to pay more attention to sleep as a health behavior and to address sleep with families and adolescents in clinical practice. Clinicians need to remind parents of the importance of getting enough sleep, at least nine hours per night, particularly in boys and younger adolescents. Another study looked at whether fasting is necessary when performing lipid testing in children and adolescents. The researchers collected data on a nationally representative sample of 17,000 children and adolescents from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. The data included results of cholesterol testing, high-density lipoproteins, low-density lipoproteins, and triglycerides on children three years of age and older, and indicated whether fasting occurred for eight hours or more. They found that triglyceride levels varied depending on whether the child had fasted. LDL cholesterol was slightly higher among children who fasted, but total cholesterol and HDL cholesterol levels were similar between children who fasted for at least eight hours and those who did not fast. The researchers concluded from the results that it might be acceptable to simply test children immediately during whatever clinical visit prompted the recommendation to test. Because the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends cholesterol screening for a large group of children, these findings could reduce the burden of such screening. In a study on infant nutrition, researchers looked at probiotic supplementation in very low birth weight infants weighing 2 pounds, 2 ounces, or less. Probiotic supplementation has been hypothesized to enhance enteral feeding and improve growth. However, the safety and efficacy has not been fully tested. 
In a randomized controlled double-blinded clinical study, the probiotic supplementation group received 500 million CFU of Lactobacillus rhamnosus strain GG and 500 million CFU of Bifidobacterium infantis added to the first enteral feeding and continued once a day until discharge or 34 weeks postmenstrual age. The control group received unsupplemented feedings. Growth velocity, average weight gain, and average volume of feeding were calculated. The data show that extremely low birth weight infants weighing 2 pounds 2 ounces or less experienced weight gain benefits when their feedings were supplemented with probiotics compared to those who were not given probiotic supplementation. Researchers found increased weight gain in the probiotics group, even though the average daily volume of feedings among the infants in the probiotics group was lower than in infants who did not receive supplementation. Supplementation with probiotics did not result in additional adverse events. In a statement, the researcher said that these findings strongly suggest that probiotic supplementation to enteral feedings plays a major role in feeding tolerance and nutrient absorption. Previous studies of children with asthma have documented higher rates of emergency department visits and inpatient hospitalizations among minority children from low socioeconomic backgrounds. A study presented at the meeting assessed the impact of a patient-centered medical home for children with asthma on emergency department use and hospitalizations. The study was conducted at Children's Hospital Boston, where asthma is the leading cause of admissions. Researchers established an asthma medical home within the hospital's primary care clinic. Nearly 2,000 asthmatic patients were identified. They received education sessions that included a review of asthma basics, appropriate medication use, how to recognize and manage an asthma attack, and common environmental asthma triggers. Families received home health care visits designed to support efforts to reduce asthma triggers. Families also received assistance obtaining medications and referrals to allergy and pulmonary specialists. Among the asthmatic patients who took part in the Comprehensive Asthma Care Program, asthma-related emergency department visits decreased 62 percent from 2006 to 2009. In addition, rates of asthma-related inpatient hospitalization also decreased 62 percent from 10.5 percent in 2006 to 4 percent in 2009. The researchers concluded that a significant and sustained reduction in emergency department visits and inpatient hospitalization rates was demonstrated among asthmatic patients. The researchers added that the creation of asthma medical homes, which coordinate patient care through easily accessible and integrated clinical, educational, and community resources, may have significant potential for effectively improving asthma outcomes in vulnerable patient populations. In a statement, one researcher said that families are better empowered to manage their children's asthma symptoms when they have increased access to primary care providers, increased knowledge about their child's disease process, and greater control over environmental triggers. A comprehensive approach to asthma has the potential to have a significant impact on the lives of asthmatic patients. Prenatal exposure to tobacco smoke has been shown to modulate brain development, which may lead to psychiatric problems requiring medication in the offspring of smokers. Researchers in Finland used population-based longitudinal registry data to investigate the effect of prenatal smoking exposure on later use of psychiatric drugs in Finnish young adults. Investigators collected data on all children born in Finland from 1987 to 1989. They studied information on maternal smoking as reported by the mothers. They also looked at various information about the offspring, such as gestational age, birth weight, and five-minute APGAR scores. They also assessed maternal history of psychiatric inpatient care and their offspring's later use of psychiatric drugs. 
the researchers found that about 12% of offspring had used psychiatric medications as young adults. 19% of those individuals had been exposed to prenatal smoking. In individuals whose mothers smoked more than 10 cigarettes a day, the rate of psychotropic medication use later in life was nearly 17%. In individuals whose mothers smoked fewer than 10 cigarettes a day, the rate of psychotropic medication use among offspring was lower, 14.7%. And in individuals who had no prenatal exposure to tobacco smoke, the rate of psychiatric drug use was 11.7%. Prenatal exposure was associated with an increased risk for use of all psychotropic drugs, but the most common drugs were stimulants used to treat ADHD and drugs for addiction. There was also an increased risk for use of drugs to treat depression. In a statement, researchers cited recent studies showing that maternal smoking during pregnancy may interfere with the growing fetus's brain development. The researchers said that avoiding smoking during pregnancy may help prevent later psychiatric problems caused by smoking exposure. Two studies presented at the meeting examined health issues and their treatment in children with autism spectrum disorders. In one study, researchers found that gastrointestinal symptoms occur in almost half of the children with autism spectrum disorders. Investigators working with the Autism Treatment Network of Hospitals reviewed data from more than 1,100 children with autism spectrum disorders. They found that 45% of these children experienced GI symptoms at the time of enrollment in the Autism Treatment Network Registry. The most commonly reported symptoms were diarrhea, constipation, and abdominal pain. Reports of GI symptoms also increased with age, ranging from 39% in those under 5 years to 51% in those 7 years and older. In children reporting GI issues, behavior problems and sleep problems were more common, and they had lower overall health-related quality of life. The researchers concluded that further definition is needed on the role and potential impact of treating GI disorders in children with autism spectrum disorders, specifically in their behavior, rate of sleep disturbance, and quality of life outcomes. In another study also conducted by the Autism Treatment Network, researchers surveyed parents of more than 1,200 children with autism spectrum disorders about their children's use of complementary and alternative medicine, frequency of gastrointestinal symptoms, demographics, and sleep habits. The researchers found that 17% of children with autism spectrum disorders were on special diets. Of these children, 53% were on a gluten or dairy-free diet. Children with gastrointestinal problems were more likely to be on gluten-free or casein-free diets, diets without processed sugar, or other type of special diets. Across all three autism spectrum disorder diagnoses, the most common complementary and alternative medicine treatment was taking vitamins. 12% of children were taking two or more complementary or alternative treatments. Children with GI problems were more likely to be taking complementary or alternative treatments such as digestive enzymes, vitamins, or probiotics than those without GI problems. Complementary and alternative medicine approaches appear to be gaining popularity for children with autism, including those with GI issues. The authors of this study said that physicians treating children with autism spectrum disorders should be aware of the complementary and alternative treatments their patients may be receiving in order to help families monitor their child's response to treatment and to assure the safety of those treatments in concert with the physician's prescribed treatments. Research was presented at the meeting on the incidence of abusive head trauma among children, which has increased greatly since the start of the economic downturn in December 2007. Abusive head trauma is the leading cause of death from child abuse. Poverty and stress are risk factors for abuse, and these risks are believed to be amplified during an economic recession. For this study, the researchers sought to assess whether any increase in abusive head trauma was related to changes in unemployment.
Investigators collected demographic and clinical data on all abusive head trauma cases from before the recession, January 1, 2004, through the end of November 2007, and compared them to dates during the recession, beginning December 1, 2007 through December 31, 2009. The data came from hospitals in four cities, Seattle, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh. The researchers found 459 abusive head trauma cases in all. 63% of these patients were admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, and 16% died. Just one-third of the children were older than one year of age. After December 1, 2007, the beginning of the recession, the number of cases of abusive head trauma increased to an average of 9.3 per month. Before that date, the average was 4.8 per month. However, the researchers were unable to attribute the increased incidence of AHT in children to higher unemployment rates. The only city without an increase in the number of abusive head trauma cases was Cincinnati. During the recession, unemployment in Cincinnati increased by 15 percent, similar to the rise in unemployment in other cities. The authors of this study wrote that although there was no ecologic relationship between increased unemployment and the magnitude of increase in abuse head trauma, this relationship may exist on a case-by-case basis. It is also possible that other factors related to the recession, such as a decrease in social services and or stressors unrelated to employment, impacted the incidence of abusive head trauma. Despite an unproven association between abuse and unemployment, the data suggests that abuse prevention efforts may need to be significantly increased now and in future times of economic hardship. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the Pediatric Academic Society's annual meeting, which took place May 1st through the 4th, 2010, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD, and powered by Health Day.